Hello everyone, this is John Byrne with Poets and Quants. I hope you're safe and healthy and your families are all sheltered in and keeping away from the storm. This is John Byrne with Poets and Quants and we're talking business casual, our podcast. We have our co-hosts on the line, Maria Wick Villa, the founder of Applicant Lab and Caroline Diarchy Edwards, the director of Fortuna Admissions and the former admissions director at NCOD. What we want to do is devote this episode to really a perennial topic in the world of MBA admissions. Should you take the GMAT or should you take the GRE? But of course, before we get that, I mean, it's impossible to ignore what's going on out there in the world of business schools. It's a remarkable time with incredible upheaval. Rarely a day goes by without another school announcing new admissions policies. And what we're generally seeing is a pushback on round three deadlines and a number of schools that have actually started a new round four that didn't exist before. In a way, they are hedging their bets. I think there's a lot of fear in the business school community that international admits are not going to get here in time for the first day of classes in the fall if they, in fact, occur on campus. And that's in part because of travel restrictions and the inability to get a student visa. I mean, most U.S. embassies are shut down. It's why Harvard Business School has said it will carry a larger wait list than normal. It's why a number of schools have added a round four, pushing deadlines back by two to three months. The most extreme of these is the University of Virginia at Darden, which this week announced a July 15th deadline, which frankly is little more than a month before the start of the first quarter on campus. And Darden specifically said they're looking for people whose circumstances at work have changed. In other words, these are not people who would have applied in this cycle. Maybe they would not even apply in the next cycle. But suddenly, either they're unemployed or they're looking at their future prospects where they currently are, and they're not nearly as bright as they once were. Caroline, what do you, what do you make of this? Yeah, I think it's a very difficult time for business schools, as you said, John. And I think, you know, it, you mentioned the international applicants. I think, I think the schools are, are concerned not just about the international students, but also domestic students, because I imagine their yield is going to drop on their admits from earlier rounds. So, you know, whereas they would have assumed a certain percentage of their admits, for example, from round one would turn up and, and join the program, that number is, though that percentage is going to drop. So, you know, I think these extensions and these additions are also partly to capture a bigger applicant pool because they're realizing that they may really struggle, you know, assuming everything is able to open up for the, the fall entry, they will struggle to actually, you know, fill the seats in their class with the, with the right sort of, you know, classroom diversity and composition. I mean, imagine losing 30 to 40% of your class because they can't come. Maria gets an advantage out of this. Oh my God! Well, first of all, what a what a real tragedy! I, I I think not only for the international students who may not be able to attend, but for the U.S. students who gain so much valuable perspective from their international classmates. I just think it's a, it's a losing proposition all around, really and, and I feel I feel pretty badly about that. Yeah, I'm I, I'm not sure. I I wonder. You know, Caroline, you you mentioned a reduction in yield. I wonder if you know if it if it does turn out that the schools say, "Look, man, this lockdown thing is still happening. We're going to all virtual all the time, at least you know for the first year." Are people going to say, "Well, you know, without those networking opportunities, it's not worth it"? 
Or are they going to say, I don't care, <laughs> a booth MBA or what have you, a top MBA is a top MBA and I'm going to jump on that. So there, I think there are just so many variables at play yeah. and so much uncertainty for everyone that it's, I was trying to create sort of like a little, a little flow chart in my head of like, if this, then this <laughs> to try to map out like what would happen. And Oh, uh, you're such an MBA. Grim. I know. I'll put it, I'll, you know what? I'll put it in a PowerPoint for you, John. I'll take it that much further. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it used to be round three was, okay, wink, wink. Uh, ad comps would say, oh yeah, we're going to consider you. But really it was good luck next year. Now people are saying, hey, if we're someone's dream school, tell them to apply in round three. This may be the best round three ever. Yeah. What do you think? Do you think it is? And if it is, who's favored? I, I'm thinking, this is just off the top of my head, that if you are a dual citizen with immigration status in the U.S. or you're a Canadian, you've got a real advantage because if international admits can't show up, the first course of action is to get people who at least have international experience, international backgrounds, yeah. and they're dual citizens and they're already here. Yeah. And so if they qualify, you want them in the class, right? Yeah, for sure. They're going to be they're going to be more offers made in round three than there would have been otherwise, because, you know, as we've said, there'll be a bunch of people from the earlier rounds who will drop out that wouldn't otherwise have dropped out. But I think, you know, I'm sure the admissions directors and program directors are doing those flowcharts as well, Maria, because I think, you know, the things are changing day by day and this is unprecedented. You know, they've never been in this situation. No one has. And so there's, you know, there's no template. They're just trying to figure things out day by day. And there's a lot of question marks, right? You know, what is their deferral policy going to be? Typically, schools are very tough on deferrals, right? It messes up your class composition if you start granting deferrals. So, you know, I would only give deferrals if people, you know, had health concerns or, you know, someone in their family um, had a health issue and they needed to stay home for that. Occasionally, you know, if they had a once in a lifetime professional opportunity and you know or if, if they had financing difficulties and having an extra year or with INSEAD you know there's two intakes per year having an extra few months would make a difference for them in putting their MBA finances together but there's going to be a lot of pressure on the schools to grant more deferrals but if they if they do that you know they're opening the floodgates and they may end up with no class at all in the fall. What about great applicants who were already dinged in earlier rounds because admissions officers looked at their old admissions models. Yes. And now the world has changed. Yeah. And I'm sure there's a bunch of people who were dinged in earlier rounds who, you know, the school would other, you know, would have taken now because they need to make <laughs> more offers. But, you know, schools don't normally let candidates reapply in a later round for the same class. So it may be that those candidates should, you know, just apply in round one for the next season. And I think, you know, this uncertainty will continue. So it's going to be a very volatile situation in terms of application volume and then also in terms of yield. So the schools are going to have very bulky wait lists, I think, for the next few cycles. You know, Caroline, you raise an interesting point there that made me think, wow, if you applied an earlier round, can you actually reapply now? You know, all the schools are talking about the great flexibility they're giving applicants but not one has yet announced, hey, we'll actually entertain a reapplication in the same year in which you've been rejected. I yeah. bet we're going to see that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in candidates in those situations, it might be worth contacting the school, right, to find out. Totally. If there was someone who was on the borderline, the school may look at them differently now. You know, just everything can change overnight, as we've seen. So That's it's, really true. It, it's worth asking. 
I would also say, you know, the schools right now, it's a very difficult situation. And if candidates are contacting schools, just be patient because, you know, they're overwhelmed with communication from applicants, from admits, from, you know, also the current students who are, you know, very concerned about their situation as well. You know, it's a very difficult time and, you know, everyone's at the school, you know, a lot of the the staff are working virtually as well. So if you're contacting the school, just cut them some slack and be patient. Yeah. So, so bottom line, look, if you're a domestic person who had been on the fence about applying, you may as well go for it now and see what happens. If you're a dual citizen and you live in the United States or you're a Canadian, this is a great time to get your application ready and to apply in a round four or an extended round three at a really good school. And if you're an international admit, you've got some interesting choices because if you can't get in, to the country in the United States, should you go to a European or Asian school if you can, or in the event that you can't even do that, should you just defer and wait and come the next year? The other problem I think is even if travel restrictions lift and you can get a student visa, I would bet that a lot of international applicants have members of their family who are as a result of this health crisis in a very different place right now. And you may wanna stay put to help with your family So that's another whole reason why there probably will be a shortage of international students in the classes in the fall. And that's if the classes are on campus instead of online. So, you know, one other really interesting result of all this is the announcement that GRE, this is Lewis first, has developed an at-home test. And on Friday, the first test takers actually sat down in their home and took the GRE at home. And within hours of the GRE announcement, GMAT came right out and said, okay, we're going to do this too. And we're going to try to target it for mid-April. And all of this, to my mind, brings up the annual conversation about what test you should take. Should it be the GMAT? Should it be the GRE? Obviously, more schools than ever before are accepting the GRE for business school admissions. And the GRE has been gaining market share on the GMAT probably for the last five years, according to our data. In some schools, more people now actually enroll in MBA programs with the GRE than the GMAT. So let's maybe go back to Caroline in the days. Actually, before that, here's a question I want to ask both Maria and Caroline. It's a little indelicate only because it suggests that I might be asking what your ages are. (laughs) But when you two took the test, did you take it on paper or on computer? (laughs) I'm old. I'm old. Not that old. (laughs) I took my, I took my test on papyrus. Thank you for asking. Oh, I love avoidance. (laughs) (laughs) No, I took it at a test center on a computer. Yeah, I think it's been on on a computer for quite quite some time. Yeah, some people are saying that this new move to put the test in, really, to be able to take it at home, is generating as much interest and the kind of volume of questions about what is this all about as the time when the test went from paper to computer. So, Caroline, what's your sense of the debate GMAT versus GRE? And do you think that business schools are over-indexing standardized test scores to begin with? 
Right. Well, the question of which test, you know, either is fine. The vast majority of schools are accepting both. Actually, at INSEAD, the school's gone back and forth on it. So when I was at the school, we started accepting the GRE. Then a few years later, the school stopped accepting it and now accepts it again. And, you know, I, I talked to the admissions director recently. She said, you know, it's absolutely fine. Candidates take the GRE. That's that's no problem. They do have a slightly higher bar in their expectations for the percentiles on the GRE than the GMAT. But I would say to candidates that, you know, when you're embarking on this process, do a practice test on both tests and see which one suits you uh, better, right? You may find that you're better suited to one style of test than the other, and they are quite different. So, you know, I would just pick the test where you think it's going to be best for you and, you know, the easiest preparation and you'll get the best results. And Caroline, I want to go back to why NCOD first said yes to the GRE, then said no, and now it's saying yes again. What caused NCOD to turn the GRE spigot off for a little while? Right. Yeah. So, I mean, NCOD was a bit late to the game with starting to accept the GRE, and that was partly because... You know, they have a lot of respect for the GMAT and the GMAT was designed as a test specifically for business schools. So, you know, it was really tailor made for the interests of MBA programs. And, you know, when I was admissions director, we looked at, you know, how good a predictor it is of academic success. And, you know, when I joined the school and, you know, I'd taken the GMAT, I'd studied at INSEAD and a couple of years later, I went back to work at the school. And when I started, I was quite skeptical about this GMAT business, as many students and alumni are, and the schools are over-reliant on it. But actually, it is a very good predictor of how people will do academically on a program like, like INSEAD's MBA program. So, you know, I think it's fair enough that schools do give it some weight. But with the GRE, what happened? So first of all, you know, they were hesitant to open up because, you know, they had a lot of respect for the GMAT. They started accepting GRE. Gradually, they started getting more candidates and students with the GRE. And they had a couple of issues where people were presenting fake tests. So that made them very nervous with a GRE. So people had taken the test, but they hadn't taken the test. And, and so they lost faith in the exam at that point. They stopped accepting it then. But I believe that now what they do is that they just do some additional checks on candidates who, who have the GRE rather than the GMAT to just be absolutely sure that it was that particular person that took the GRE. Right. Uh, Maria, what, what do you tell your clients? You know, similar to Caroline, I, I asked them to look at practice tests. And for me, I think whichever test the quantitative section flows the most naturally for them, that's the one that I think they should take. Because I, I do think that, you know, in the grand scheme of things, the quantitative number at the end of the day, you know, if you're going to be taking core classes in statistics and macroeconomics and you know accounting and finance you do need to have some fluency with numbers so that's sort of what i advise and and when people are bad test takers i think the conventional wisdom is to tell them to take the gre if for no other reason than the fact that it is not a number that is as obsessed over as the GMAT score in terms of, you know, just last week we were talking about the the rankings. I do know that some rankings are starting to include GRE scores, but the fact is that, I mean, let's be honest, we all still focus on that average GMAT score. So my sense is that if someone is otherwise a very strong candidate, but for whatever reason, the test taking just isn't working out for them, I do often advise them to take the GRE and see how that goes for them. And there's a general belief, whether it's true or not, that the quant on the GRE is a little more, how would I put it, 
friendly yeah. <laughs> uh, than the quant on the GMAT. Maria, do you think that's true? I do. I, uh, I, I definitely think that's true. And I also wonder, this is completely unscientific, but since the GRE is taken by everyone applying to every graduate program, including the comparative literature majors and the English majors and the psychology majors and people who, well, psychology maybe does have a quantitative aspect to it, but you know, for, for, for every graduate school, even graduate programs that have nothing to do with quantitative analysis, I do wonder if from a percentile basis, if someone might do better, given that the broader GRE applicant pool may not skew so heavily analytical. Ah, but that's I have a no point. way to prove yeah. that. That's a point I never considered, <laughs> but but clearly that uh, that would make a lot of sense. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> I'm just I'm just it's just something I've always suspected, but only they would know, and I suspect they won't tell us. <laughs> and, and you know, and I'm thinking that look in a ten month program, which is what NCOT has. A standardized test score will be given greater weight because the intensity of a 10-month experience means you got to really be sure that a candidate is up to snuff and is going to be able to perform well, particularly in the core, because it's so quick and fast and you blink your eyes and it's over. Okay, but I'm wondering in general if the two of you think that standardized test scores are over-indexed by and large because of rankings because they factor very significantly in the U.S. news ranking, of course. And among U.S. schools, that is the most important ranking. And also because there is this belief, which I do not believe is true, that GMAT scores in particular equate to IQ. Yeah, I mean, who knows? <laughs> I think it is, you know, it's a good predictor of one thing, and that's how a student is going to do on the program. You know, anything beyond that and, you know, career success and so on is, is a very different question. You know, the one thing I would say about the GMAT or the GRE is that, you know, it's a common data point that the schools have. And when you look at it, an applicant pool, you know, especially a school like in Seattle, London Business School, where, you know, they have candidates coming from all over the world coming from, you know, an incredibly diverse pool of academic backgrounds, educational institutions, professional backgrounds, languages, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. It can be very difficult sometimes to compare candidates and, and, you know, figure out who stands out. And, you know, the GMAT is, is one part of the evaluation, but it can be an important part because it's the one thing that, that people have in common. So, Although let so me think- let me uh, slightly disagree here because the test is in English. And if English yeah. is your second language, you are yes. at a somewhat disadvantage. You uh, are, yeah. There is the socioeconomic issue about uh, the standardized test, not only the GMAT and the GRE, the SAT, the ACT, and all these entrance examinations, which tend to favor people who grew up in educated households and in places where there was some semblance of wealth, putting other people at a disadvantage. Yes. Women tend not to do as well on these tests than men. There may be a gender bias associated mm. with them. And while in a 10-month program, you obviously saw that the GMAT was a very good predictor of success. You know, I had the dean at the University of Virginia at Darden School this week tell me, you know, the GMAT, after all, isn't a great predictor of success in the classroom. And in fact, 
in admissions interview will often tell you more undergraduate transcripts in the GPA correlate better to success in the classroom and beyond. The University of Toronto Rotman School once did a study a few years back that we reported in Poets and Quants, which said actually it's a very there's a very poor correlation between high GMAT scores and the ability of a student to get a job after graduation. That in fact sure, uh, but both, that's not yeah, yeah but under, it's not trying to measure that, right? Un, yeah. The undergraduate transcript was better, as well as the uh, admissions interview. Yeah, the GMAT's not supposed to be predicting your professional success. It's a very different question. And I would say, you know, with a school like Darden, it's a much, much less diverse pool than a school, than an applicant pool at INSEAD or London Business School. So maybe at that type of school, you know, G undergrad GPA is as good or a better predictor of academic success. But if you've got a much more diverse pool and people coming from, you know, a lot of different educational backgrounds, different GPA systems, different universities, then GMAT is, is the common denominator. And I would also say schools are, you know, they are sensitive to the differences that you mentioned of different groups and how they typically perform on the GMAT. And they do take that into account. So the bar is not the same for everybody. And they will have higher expectations on the GMAT or the GRE for certain groups than others. Right. I, from all of my reporting, I have to say that I think the GMAT is the trickier test because these people who compose it are looking really hard at differentiation. And so to get the differentiation that they want among the test takers, they're asking questions that tend to be a little trickier than the more straightforward questions on the GRE. I know there's a lot of debate about this. That's my personal viewpoint based on interviews with people who've taken both tests and, and people in the field who, who basically devote their lives to prepping people for both tests. Other thing I'll say about these tests, which I hate, <laughs> is while the holy grail may be 700 and above, what does it really take to gain some level of confidence that an applicant will be successfully complete the core. Is it 600, 650? I sure as hell know it's not 700 and above. Maria? Yeah. No, I mean, I think if, if that were the case, then the schools would simply not even consider anyone with below a 700, right? I mean, there are clearly people who get in every year with those scores, and they not only get in, but they then go on to graduate. And some of them, um, that very same Rotman study that you that you cited, John, I believe that one of the former deans there said that, you know, I think two years in a row, the valedictorian of the class actually had a below average GMAT score or something like that. And I think they said, and admittedly, every school is going to have a different level of rigor to their core. Uh, but I think Rotman said that I think a 580 is about as low as you can go and be comfortable with the idea that this person is not going to flounder and just be miserable in that first year, that they will be able to, on some level, handle things. So, you know, and, and every year, you know, I mean, we can argue about who is the mysterious person every year who does get into a it's Harvard true. or a Stanford with a 580, right? But, you know, maybe they just pick that one person because they like being able to say that they, they accepted <laughs> someone with, with a score that I low. But, that. you know, I think, I, yeah, I think there is. But hey, that person got in and chances are that person didn't fail out, right? So, because pretty easy to not flunk out. It's not that hard. So, I mean, there's a lot of work, but it's not, they don't kick you out that easily because they want your money, I think. But, <laughs> but so anyway, so yeah, I don't, I don't think that the cutoff necessarily makes sense. I just think to Caroline's point, 
when you have people from so many different backgrounds and, you know, someone has a 6.8 from IIT, is that a good, is that a good student or a bad student? I don't know. So at least having that as a standard comparison between people, I do think is, is valuable. Now, what do you make of this move now to take the test at home while test centers have closed down? I'm suspecting that if it goes well, and who knows, I mean, there could be all kinds of technical glitches. Maybe the security on the test isn't exactly as good as it needs to be. We don't know. And they don't even know. But let's say it goes really well. Do you think we might see this as another option for people, even when test centers reopen? I don't see why not if it goes well. You know, it's great to have that flexibility. It also means that people in places where the GMAT is not currently offered would have access or, you know, a lot of people have to travel to take the test. So there's a huge convenience factor there. One of the funniest reactions I got from a reader at Poets and Quants was, hey, wait a minute, this is unfair. I had to get in the car, (laughs) drive through heavy traffic to a test center, find a parking space, then sit down in the room with 25 other people. And the stress of all that was a disadvantage to me. Now people can just sit back in their own home, take it at their leisure, not have to battle their way through heavy traffic and worry if they're going to even show up on time. And the advantage goes to them and I have to compete against these people. (laughs) I think the extra adrenaline you get from all the struggles beforehand probably help you do better. So, right. (laughs) Though I will say that when I took it, and I suspect this is true for everyone, I was not allowed to bring my coffee into the room with me. I had to put it in a little locker, which was very upsetting. So at least, you know. The adrenaline, the adrenaline might be good at the test center, but at least if you take it at home, you can have your, you can have your. Well, actually, you can. Yeah, this is really interesting because yeah, uh, the great. GRE restrictions are amazing. Like you can't wear jewelry, right? Your webcam what? camera has to be able to give a 360 degree view of your desktop. You can have nothing on your desktop except a whiteboard. You cannot have coffee or anything else on your desktop. Oh. It's kind of like Big Brother-ish, frankly. Now, I understand, you know, they want to make sure no one is going to cheat. They're using artificial intelligence, in fact, to see if someone has another application open. The webcam will be able to tell if your eyes are moving away from your screen in another direction so that the proctor, the human proctor who will be monitoring you and watching you in your own home will be able to say, hey, I want you to push the camera over to the right side because I see that you're looking over to the right a little too often during this test. I mean, there are all kinds of restrictions that the GRE has placed on this. GMAT is yet to announce all the details because frankly, they are playing catch up and are behind and don't know what the details are. But I imagine that the details, the restrictions and the limitations of the GRE are going to apply to the GMAT at-home test as well. How do you two feel about a monitor looking at you in your own home? Well, it's a little bit spooky, but you know, I totally understand why they're doing that. And the schools are going to want those kind of security measures in place. Agreed. Because otherwise, you know, frankly, they're not going to give any credence to the test. So right. they want all of those. And that, that's it's it's an advantage for you that your test has very strong security and, and they believe that it was actually you taking the test and, and you didn't have the opportunity to cheat. So <laughs> But, you know, afterwards, people may well prefer to go to a test center so that they don't have to take 
a test at home under those conditions. Who knows? But, you know, I still think it will be, you know, a great option for people who don't otherwise have easy access to the test and may give people more time flexibility, you know, greater availability of test dates, perhaps. True. And uh, I think the restrictions also should reassure people taking the test that no one can seek an unfair advantage. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know though. I, I feel like if you, I feel like there's going to be a way to, to maybe not completely hack it, but I actually do think there could be a way to, to cheat. And because you can just take it, let's say I wanted to cheat and I run a, a cheating ring <laughs> and I've got like 10 different people in my cheating ring. All we have to do is we just each sign up and we try our different, our different ideas. And, and, and we see like, do we get caught or not? But I, I can think of some ways that there might be able you know, if they use like a like a splitter so that the, the screen output can go to two different screens and then the person actually taking the test is underneath the desk so that the 360 degree, you know, thing doesn't catch them. I don't know. I've already started thinking of ways that people can game the system and I hope I'm wrong, but I, uh, I'm but sure you're not wrong. I think, I think someone's going to figure it out. <laughs> I, you know, I, I'm just... I'm just a student of human nature. <laughs> okay, we should we should tell everyone that Maria and Caroline have young children in their homes and they are sheltered in with them. How's it going? Well, no one's strangled anybody yet, so I count that as a, you know, good outcome <laughs> right now. Oh, good. <laughs> have you any advice for other parents who have now young children in their home with them? Well, my husband sat in, there was a, um, a webinar by, for Stanford alumni yesterday by one of the sort of education experts. And I think there were thousands of people listening in <laughs> on this webinar for, you know, how to manage with this sort of distance learning for kids who are out of school. And they had some great advice, but, you know, they were talking about sensible advice, right? You know, keep a routine, you know, and also the principle of, you know, put your oxygen mask on first like in the aeroplane, you know, you need to look after yourself yeah. because it's very, it's very stressful, right? You're all shut up together. Um, a lot of people are trying to juggle work and looking after the kids and helping the kids with their, their schoolwork and you don't have any help at home either. So it, it is um, very difficult. So just, you know, look after yourself and uh, the kids will be fine. Good right? advice. I think if they get it, get a little bit behind for a few weeks or a couple of months it's it's not the end of the world and maria do you have have you developed any tricks to use with your children in the home no yeah but i have a trick that includes bribery with screen time <laughs> i you know i'm i'm actually kind of optimistic about this time i'm actually kind of enjoying this in terms of my son because i feel like what he's doing right now is that his teachers have sent homework for him to be working on during the day and it's the typical stuff but we actually found this online coding boot camp for him he loves computers and computer gaming and coding for games and so for like eight hours a day he's doing oh, that what's it called? and then like in what's the it uh it's called code rev c-o-d-e-r-e-v-r-e-v -E 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 it's like a it's like one of these after school it's a chain of after school centers and they very smartly switch to zoom learning. So he's like writing code. And then there's an instructor on the other side who can like see his screen and tell him what he's doing wrong. And I, you know, it means that we're falling a little bit behind on the actual curriculum, but I'm just so happy that he's getting a chance to spend his day doing something that he's really passionate about, as opposed to having to, you know, he has, a, he has very narrow interests and a lot of stuff at school does not interest him at all. So I'm actually kind of liking being able to play hooky with the boring parts <laughs> of the, the official fourth grade curriculum. 
and giving him a chance to really spend some time learning something he loves. That's so great stuff. That's my that's my sort of positive spin on that's it. That's great. <laughs> Love it. Well, Maria, Caroline, thank you so much again. This is John Byrne with Parts and Quants. You've been listening to Business Casual. We hope you've enjoyed our show. Join us next week. Every single week, we're back with a new topic and a little update on what's going on out there in the world. We hope you stay safe. We hope you stay healthy. Don't leave your house unless you have to.